from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Bradford Baker. Bradford grew up in a completely dysfunctional family. He himself was heavily into gang activity starting in the 8th grade. He runs into a Baha'i at university and his transformation thus begins. I started the interview by asking Bradford where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in eastern Washington in a small rural town of probably what was maybe 4,000 people at the time. And my father was in Vietnam. He served four years, and so when he got out, he had 100% post-traumatic stress syndrome and was dealing with a lot of mental health issues. He met my mother, and both of them were basically severe, you know, alcoholics. They got into pretty heavy uh, drug dealing and gun smuggling. A lot of drugs, coke parties. My dad spent a lot of time with, you know, basically like Hell's Angels, cats and people like that. So that was kind of the initial part of my youth. In sixth grade, my grandparents, on my my father's mother and father, basically took me and my sister and sent us to Montana and then took my youngest brother in with them because my parents couldn't raise us. So then I lived on a cattle ranch. How did you feel about that? I mean, that's the thing is at the time it was normal. You know, it was the environment that I had grown up in, seeing, you know, people get killed, just constantly being around, you know, drugs and guns and and violence and things like that. So it was just, it was normative. It was normal. So how did you feel being taken away from it? Um, you know, I think, or at least the way that I've, I've looked back on it, is that when it becomes so normal, when you actually get put into an environment that, you know, is quote-unquote healthy, you'll begin to self-destruct, you'll begin to actually create, you know, drama and crisis and chaos because it's what's familiar. So when we had gotten sent to Montana with my cousins, they are basically you know, very right-wing, conservative Presbyterians, you know, your kind of typical leave-it-to-beaver household, it was just, you know, it was a completely radically, radically different world. You know, so did did not excel well in that environment at all. You know, I, I acclimated a little bit enough to kind of survive, but, you know, was was pretty much utterly miserable the entire time I was there. Did you even act out more than if you were with your parents in the environment you were in with your parents? I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of acting out really you could do. I mean, we we had about 500 head of cattle and about 3,000 acres of winter wheat, and I had to work. I had a horse. I had a four-wheeler. I had a dog. I went to class. As soon as class was done, went back to the ranch and, and worked. You know, and you worked until sunset outside, and as soon as the sun set, you know, you worked inside. So there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of environment to act out in necessarily. I moved back and forth between Montana and eastern Washington several times, 
kind of over that three-year period because I was miserable there. But then I would come back to Eastern Washington. My parents were homeless, you know, living in the back of a car or one-bedroom motel rooms with all five of us, you know, or trailer parks and things like that. And I would hate that. And then I moved back to Montana. So it was this constant bouncing back and forth. And then my eighth grade year, I decided that I'd rather be miserable in Eastern Washington than miserable in Montana. And I was, you know, I was still close to my parents. I didn't necessarily resent them. You know, and I, I had a very kind of close, I guess you could say, bond with them. But when I moved back, basically began gangbanging, you know, got really heavily involved, you know, in drugs myself and alcohol myself, you know, ended up kind of as a basically gang initiation, broke into my middle school 13 times, stole a bunch of stuff, vandalized a bunch of stuff, got caught for that, got charged with a bunch of felonies, and spent most of my summer in, uh, in juvenile detention and community service. So that was kind of eighth grade. So then we were basically still homeless. My grandfather died in sixth grade. My grandmother died in eighth grade. My parents basically inherited her house, you know, my grandparents' house. So finally, you know, we had a place to live. So we were still poor, but, we, you know, we had consistent shelter, which we'd never really had prior to that. Then, you know, my parents really started to get their act together. So they stopped associating with the people they were hanging out with. They stopped selling drugs. You know, my dad went to inpatient, outpatient, a bunch of VA stuff for PTSD, 12-step. My mom did the same thing. They completely got their act together, you know, kind of over this three-year period. Was it the stable shelter that initiated this? Yeah, I think it was that. I mean, it was definitely that. One of our houses got basically repossessed by the ATF for selling drugs out of it. And that happened, I think, when I was in, like, third grade. So then from, you know, third grade all the way until my senior, or my freshman year of high school, you know, it was transient living. Sometimes my parents would have a little more money, then we'd be in a trailer park. But a lot of that time was, you know, literally spent in the back of a car. So it definitely having something that was consistent was huge. And then also it was, I think it was, my father seeing his father die, and then also seeing his mother die, and seeing his grandmother die, all in a very quick, short period, and just kind of suffering through this very estranged relationship where it was incredibly stressful. When my grandmother died, they left nothing to my father. Nothing. I mean, everything was put in my name because I was the oldest. And I think my father kind of confronting that, seeing that all of these assets and houses and cars and all stuff like this, none of it was left to him. And I think that was a big shock for him, and that was kind of an impetus to basically get his act together. Did this also initiate transformation in you as well from your eighth grade troubles? Well, (laughs) Well, the first three years of my high school, you know, I was a stellar student. I did science fair. I took first at state both times, excelled exceptionally academically in all those areas. But at the same time, I stopped gangbanging and started skateboarding. For this is the second time you used the word gangbanging, but doesn't that imply gang rape? No, 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 no. Yeah, it's the different, I guess, different terms for different. But yeah, it's not gang rape. It's not threesomes. It's gangbanging is when you're with gangsters. You know, so you thug, you bang, you know, I you see. tag stuff. Bang, so bang, bang a gun. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's a term that we use out here. Like, if you're a gangbanger, you're, you're in a gang, you're a thug, that type of thing. My situation with that is that, you know, my dad sold all these guys their weed. So I was cool with basically a very wide assortment of, of different gangsters, you know, or, or kind of criminal, criminal gangs, criminal thugs, youth gangs, youth street gangs, things like that. And they were cool with all of them. You know, all of them were cool with me because my dad was the one that sold them the drugs. Kind of hot between these different, 
youth gangs. Now, were you a model student in your middle school years, or is this a new development in high school? I mean, I'd always excelled academically. You know, so in the classroom, I wasn't, I wasn't acting out in the classroom. It was always outside of the classroom. I very much kind of respected that space, and, you know, I loved to read. I was very academic, very intelligent. I loved doing science fair. But at the same time, there was this completely other, other Bradford, basically, where, you know, I was this, like, pantsagging, skateboarding, you know, Liberty Spikes, so there was no pressure on you to not be so academically inclined with your associates? I never really got pressure one way or the other from my parents. You know, when I was 13, I had gotten a dozen felonies, and, you know, my parents didn't even blink an eye. <laughs> it just wasn't even a big deal. So, I mean, they, they really they cared neither one way or the other. Either the gangsters I was kicking it with or the skateboarders that I was kicking it with, I was, so to speak, like, down. So they didn't really care... I guess on one side I was a dweeb or a nerd, like, in class. Because when we were out of class, you know, and I was in, like, mostly AP classes and things like that, so I wasn't necessarily, you know, within the school environment itself. We weren't, aside from, you know, like, recess and, and break, spending a lot of time together. So, yeah, my, so those first three years, freshman, sophomore, and junior, were kind of this total thug, skateboarder, blah, 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 blah. And then my summer between my junior and senior year, Basically, my father, he all of a sudden, literally in a month, had all of his L&I claims got approved, his DA claims got approved, and his Social Security got approved. So we went from being, you know, literally hand-to-mouth poverty to making $8,000 a month tax-free. So we were instantly shot into upper middle class. And for me, that was this instant kind of outlet out of the poverty that I'd grown up in, and I just... I completely clinged on to that and ran with it. So I left my junior year of high school with this. I had one pair of jeans and, like, white zombie T-shirts and Liberty Spikes and, you know, Mohawks and things like that. And, my, you know, the first day of my senior year, I was wearing, like, sweater vests and polos and khaki pants. You know, so it was, it was a complete transition as a way to basically I was performing class and I was performing being upper middle class. So I completely changed my group of friends started hanging out with all the jocks, all the preps. Um, I was homecoming king, you know, my senior year. It was this complete, complete transition. Side. So you went to a different school and able to do no, this? No, same school. And it was merely just the neighborhood that you moved to that initiated this transformation on your extracurricular activities? No, we actually, I mean, we stayed in the same house. We're in the same house now that, my, that we inherited from my grandparents. That change, so to speak, and that's the thing, too. It was all external, you know, the internal, you know, addictions, Sex, drugs, drinking, you know, all these other self-destructive behaviors were still there. It was just, you know, I was wearing different clothes and okay. hanging out with a different clique. You know, so externally, and then, then that's the thing, too. You know, I basically told all, like, my skater friends, I was like, hey, I don't want to kick it with you anymore. You know, this is who I am now, blah, 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 blah. I just ended, just stopped calling them, stopped hanging out with them, and spent all my time with jocks and preps, basically. And why did you want so, to do that? Because I wanted to be perceived as being middle class. You know, I was tired of being poor. So it was a way, it was literally, it was performing class, basically. At 16, I began volunteering in an emergency room in my hometown because I wanted to be a surgeon. Applied to the University of Washington, got in, and, you know, was on this, this pre-med track, basically. And again, to go, to go back to the class thing, the entire reason, you know, that I wanted to be a surgeon was basically because, you know, I wanted to secure class privilege. You know, when we were poor, it was a way to be rich. 
um, when we were middle class, it was a way to hold on to, to that wealth. You know, so I could kind of care less about actually helping people. It was, I just want to secure class privilege. So I went to UW, and when I was there, my first quarter there, I was given, and, and again, all this leads up to uh, how I became Baha'i, you know, and where I am now, but I was given a, basically a brochure to do a study abroad in South Africa. And I was like, okay, tight. Like, I didn't even know where Cape Town was at the time. All I cared about was that there was a service learning component to it, which basically meant that I could, you know, I would be able to work in one of the townships, basically work with poor black African kids. It looks good on a resume. It'll increase my chances of getting into med school. Great. So I, I applied and got in. So a few weeks later, I was 18 years old and living in Cape Town. So you hadn't even gotten to your first semester of University of Washington before going to South Africa for this study abroad? Yeah, it was, it was, it was my second quarter at UW. Because okay. UW's on a quarter system. So okay. fall quarter, I was at UW. Winter quarter, January 1st, I was in Cape Town. So you were still a wild kid outside of class? Yeah. I, you know, I ended up joining a fraternity when I was at UW and just literally, you know, partied my ass off. Did not do well, you know, my first quarter at UW at all. Did moderately well on the first two study abroads that I did. You know, one was in Cape Town, one was in Italy. I think more because there was a, more of a lax academic environment where it just wasn't as, as rigorous as UW in Seattle was versus where it was in, you know, South Africa or Italy. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, when I was down there, I just, you know, I partied my ass off. Come to class drunk. Yeah, really partied really, really hard. A lot of that, too, was basically, so the, the program that we were down there on, and this leads to kind of where I am now, which I didn't even pay attention to when I signed up, but it was basically, it was studying the similarities between apartheid in South Africa and apartheid in the U.S. So it was my first encounter with basically like whiteness and race, where up to that point, I just never really thought about it. I knew that we were poor, but at least we were white. And my father would actually used to say that growing up. He's like, you know, at least, you know, we might be poor, but at least we're not Mexican. Really going down there and just, you know, actually studying whiteness, studying race, studying the formation of all these things, you know, and white supremacy and, and just this brutal, brutal history of, you know, race and racism in the U.S. was this, you know, massive shock to my system. You know, at the time, I had absolutely no positive coping mechanisms whatsoever, so I completely resorted to partying, womanizing, you know, all that, because it was a way to just to kind of deal with what I was being confronted with. So after South Africa, I went to Italy for another study abroad, came back to Seattle, dropped out of UW because I was just in kind of so much basically existential shock from what I had just been through. I didn't leave, stayed on campus, and actually stayed in the frat. So I basically took an entire quarter off school, like, just to party. And that's all I did. You know, I just partied and drank and womanized and spent, you know, four months doing nothing but that. And the frat was okay um, with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was I was their ideal. You know, I was, I was the frat boy when I was at UW. To give you an idea, there were... There were a couple other frats that they would actually say, you know, if you had gotten to, like, the level that I was at, they would say, like, oh, I'm the Bradford of this house, which was, and, you know, people knew what that meant because it was just, I was that infamous throughout the Greek system. So winter 2002, I re-enrolled in school, but then, and this is when I'm 19, I was coming back from over the, over Snoqualmie Pass from eastern Washington to Seattle and basically hit black ice going over, you know, 70 miles an hour, rolled my Explorer seven times, you know, and was just brutally, brutally handicapped, destroyed. You know, so they, 
Harborview is the only trauma level one, basically ER in all of the Northwest. So they flew me there. I had to have like seven hours of neurosurgery. Died twice during surgery, like flatline, no brain function. I was in a coma on life support for three weeks. I couldn't even breathe for myself. You know, after the surgery, I was in a J collar for like six months. Was just completely dehabilitated. So went through that whole experience, and that you know that was kind of this like massive you know shock, like literally you know dying at 19, and had to go through a lot of like physical therapy and and all this other stuff just to go through that. So I have pretty severe. I mean, not very severe, but brain damage. So, you know, I have a lot of memory loss still. Mm. A lot of my youth I don't remember. You know, there's bits and pieces of it. You know, even now it's like short-term memory, long-term memory, like all that stuff is very, very kind of shoddy still. So I did that. re-enrolled back in school that August. Failed every single class because, you know, my, my cognitive abilities hadn't caught up. Dropped out of school again. Moved back to eastern Washington and, you know, moved back in at home, ended up getting a job as a used car salesman, which was kind of this absolute low point of my life. So I had chronic pain from the car accident. You know, I was selling used cars. Two years before, I was on this fast track to becoming a surgeon and one of the most popular frat boys and the Greeks, you know, and all this other stuff. So it was this kind of huge disparity between where I wanted to be and where I was. In the middle of that, my mentor was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, who's and your mentor? He was uh, Jim Klaus, and he was actually the one that gave me the original brochure to do the study abroad in South Africa. And he and I, you know, were very close during the, you know those my first two years at UW. You know, so I spent a lot of time with him on the phone and emails and, and stuff like that. Prior to him dying, he basically convinced me to to go back to school. And he's like, you know, you you have to go back. You have to get your degree. And I did. So I you know I re enrolled in UW again. Had literally had this massive, you know, internal change and transformation. It was basically spring 2003 that I re-enrolled. And this was actually when I met my first Baha'i. At that point, I basically kind of, I'd gotten out of the frat, was kind of done with that scene, but was still womanizing, still drinking, was getting a lot more into social justice work as a result of kind of everything that I'd seen. And I was kind of questioning all these different paradigms and the world is very different than, I was learning it was very different than how I had been taught that it was. Um, you know, so I was doing a lot of stuff with like Amnesty International and, and all these different things. So one of the projects that I was involved in was called the Dialogue Project. We were, you know, organizing this big conference at UW. I had hosted the meeting that night at the house that I was living at. You know, it was like 9 o'clock in the evening, and we were all there, and we were, you know, planning stuff. And uh, Elham Simmons, um, she came a little late, and, you know, so she comes in, I introduce myself, and I was like, oh, you know, would you like a glass of wine? And she's like, oh, no, no thanks, I don't drink, I'm a Baha'i. And I was like, oh, is that like a disease, are you allergic? <laughs> and and apparently it's contagious, because whatever it is, I caught it. So, you know, I'd never even heard the word Baha'i before. And she kind of giggled and, and shrugged it off, and, you know, very gently and kindly informed me, you know, very briefly what it was. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you have fun with that. You, you love a guy named the Bob and this other weird stuff and man is one, God is one, like whatever, you have fun with that. But at the same time was completely taken aback by this woman. You know, had just had literally never met anyone like her before in my life. Tell me and, why. You know, it's, it's the way in which, you know, she basically reflects the attributes of God. I'd never been around anything like that. You know, I, you know, spent a vast majority of my life, you know, either, you know, kicking it with drug dealers or gangbangers or 
skateboarding thugs or, you know, frat boys and things like that. And not to say that, you know, there's not people within those those environments that do reflect the attributes of God or that have the potential. It was just a shock, basically, to my, my spiritual senses. After basically having met her, I was like, you know, it was the craziest thing. I was like, I need to be celibate. And I literally, you know, was like, I'm done. I'm, I, I need to, you know, get a handle on, on all this womanizing because it was just being in an environment where, you know, around somebody that's that spiritually pure, you know, all of your faults and flaws and, and defects become a lot more apparent. You know, that was kind of the main one. I was like, I really need to. So and I, I literally did. You know, I called up all my booty calls. I called up all girls I would have one-night stands with and, and all that stuff. And I was like, you know what? It's, I'm done. I'm out of the game. Like, no kissing, no nothing. Like, that's over. At the time, I was also, I was interning at a place called the World Affairs Council, which is kind of a bourgeoisie nonprofit in Seattle that, you know, promotes global awareness and, and things like that. There was a Baha'i that was working there also. We, wor- we worked different shifts. I didn't really get a chance to, to talk to her very much. But I also, there was a study abroad in Morocco, Namibia, New Zealand that I had all applied for and all got accepted to. So I went to Morocco for two months, studied post-colonial literature, studied Arabic. And that's really when this other huge change that I was about to go through really began, where studying all this revolutionary theory and, you know, reading Fanon and Malcolm X and Mandela and all this stuff and was just like, you know, completely exposed to a different way of thinking and a different way the world operates. So studying, you know, oppression and sexism and capitalism and, you know, all these things. So I, I did the program in Morocco, and then I had two months free where I spent basically just two months backpacking through Europe with another one of my best friends. And the girl, this Baha'i from the World Affairs Council, happened to be in Paris at the same time I was. So we met up, spent like nine hours walking around Paris together, talked a lot about the faith, and it was the first time I'd actually had like a, a deep conversation about it. So then when I got done with Europe, I spent two weeks in South Africa before I went to Namibia, and then two weeks after. And when I was in Namibia, I was working with cheetahs. But in South Africa, Elham was there at the same time, who was the first Baha'i that I met. So, you know, I spent the two weeks with her beforehand, and the two weeks after, met all these other Baha'is, all these other youth. I mean, that's really kind of when I began investigating the faith, was, was from basically the time that I spent with her in South Africa. So then I went to New Zealand, and in New Zealand studied, again, it was studying critical theory, studying revolutionary theory, post-colonial theory, and a lot of that stuff. So came back from New Zealand and started spending more time with this Baha'i that I'd met at the World Affairs Council, and so we ended up dating for two years. The same thing, kind of being in that environment, going to Ruhi and study circles and, and things like that. That process of investigating the faith ran very parallel to this massive change that I'd had where I'd, you know, basically become a militant Marxist and was becoming more and more and more militant, you know, as the, the literally week by week by week, you know, and I was on like the front page of our college newspaper 11 times for, you know, organizing different protests and different rallies and all of these things. And a, and a lot of that change was directly inspired by all of the class struggle that I had had growing up, being poor and things like that, combined with studying the history of, like, white supremacy and the history of racism and things like that in South Africa. And then I began doing a lot more very structured anti-racist trainings and, and studying of it when I was in Seattle. So I'm investigating the faith, this 
very peace-loving, you know, we're all one family, nonviolence, very seriously, while at the same time studying guerrilla warfare tactics. And I did, you know, I actually, I went to Cuba for three months, you know, and basically studied guerrilla warfare while I was down there, and came back from Cuba and was, was really, really militant. More and more and more was just advocating for violent revolution. You know, the system is only going to respond to violence. We need to be willing to kill for this. We need to be willing to die for it. You know, just seeing all the horrific things that the U.S. had done in Cuba just, you know, made me livid. And then six months later, I ended up going to Guatemala and doing a human rights program down there, studying the similarities between studying the U.S.-sponsored genocide, meeting all of these, like, genocide survivors and just, you know, reading this, like, brutal history of U.S. foreign policy towards Guatemala and sponsoring it, just outright, like, sponsoring a genocide, like, financing it, sponsoring it, all this stuff. So it came back from that. And that was just kind of the tipping point. You know, I had this big kind of Grizzly Adams beard, you know, and this green Che Guevara beret and big Malcolm X glasses and basically wore, like, fatigues all the time and chewed on cigars and definitely was playing the role, so to speak. So this was summer 2006. And immediately after coming back from Guatemala, I did this overland trip from Cairo to Cape Town which was basically doing field research for my senior thesis. You know, I was looking at basically the problem with white people going to Africa to help. And I went with three other people, and we actually flew into Israel. We flew into Tel Aviv, and I was like, hey, you know, Haifa, a couple hours away, I'm going to hop on a train and, and go up. So, and I did. I actually went to Haifa, you know, and was able to pray in the Shrine of the Bob, walk up all the 19 terraces, just spend all day on the gardens and things like that. Is the same thing, you know, on these, these kind of two parallel but very, very different paths that I was going on and investigating. So then we started this whole Cairo to Cape Town trip. Very serendipitously, I kept running into Baha'is the whole way. You know, when I spent three weeks in Uganda at the temple in Kampala with the director there, and there was a Baha'i from Seattle, Wes Baker. I'd basically do all my interviews during the day, and as soon as I was done, I headed to the temple you know, and do Ruhi or just basically sit and like ask questions. So let me explain to folks a little bit that in Kampala, Uganda, there is a Baha'i house of worship and there's houses of worship basically in the various continents of the globe. And one of them, the one in Africa is in Kampala, Uganda. And I guess that's where you went in the evening to take a study class that we call Ruhi. On that trip, I get to Cape Town and just am literally just emotionally shattered. You know, I just spent the last four and a half, five months traveling from the top to the bottom of Africa, looking at the one thing that is supposed to redeem us as a humanity, which is helping. It's, it's helping those in need. You know, I had looked at it right in the eyes and just saw this brutal disparity between this rhetoric of helping and the realities of what are actually going on on the ground. Aid workers trading sex for food, trading mm. sex for blankets, you know, all these helpers basically living in, in literally, you know, very posh environments, completely separated from the communities that, that they were there to assist, just massive squandering of millions and millions of dollars, just, you know, literally it was this brutal disparity. And then also at the same time, you know, looking at it through a very racialized lens. You know, what does it mean to be white here? What is the history of whiteness in Africa? You know, and all these things. And, you know, so I'm sitting on this beach in Cape Town, you know, I'm smoking a cigar, I'm drinking a glass of rum, you know, I'm just like bawling. What is going to fix this? What could possibly remedy, you know, this horrific 
disparity, you know, and I, and, you know, and I said, you know, I've been to Cuba studying revolution and Guatemala studying revolution and, you know, worked with former anti-apartheid guerrilla fighters in South Africa and, you know, which, which model could possibly remedy this brutal disparity. And, you know, literally the first thing that popped into my mind was, you know, the Baha'i faith. Like, that's it. That's the only thing that's going to be able to fix this. It was a very kind of big shock. When I got to Cape Town, I immediately looked up all these, and this is literally, you know, as soon as I got off the plane, went to the beach, had a cigar, you know, a glass of rum, you know, so the next day, um, started calling up all these, you know, other Baha'is that I would met, you know, the other times that I had been to South Africa, you know, and really began, you know, getting LinkedIn and, and wanting to meet people and, you know, started doing book two. This, again, is the Ruhi series, yeah. Ruhi book two. But at the same time, it was still this, you know, I like your principles, you got a good message, but, you know, I don't believe in God, and, you know, you're not, you're not pragmatic enough. You're not revolutionary enough. You know, so I was studying it more on a very mental level, like, you know, wanting to basically pull out what I thought was good and make a composite sketch of it to apply to, you know, the, the types of social transformation that I was trying to, to lend to. So to, to contextualize all this, this is my last quarter in school. You know, I, I went to UW for seven years. This is my ninth study abroad. I was teaching a class for UW down there, the same one that I took seven years earlier. It was this perfect, beautiful cycle. I handpicked every single student on the program, basically. You know, it was my dream quarter. It was, you know, I was working with former anti-apartheid guerrilla fighters, like these people that I had kept in touch with over seven years. Everything was perfect. Three weeks into the program, the girl that I was dating at the time, this Baha'i back in Seattle, basically somebody broke into her apartment and, and tried to rape her. You know, I found this out and was just was utterly devastated and was literally confronted with this, you know, what do I do? At the time, you know, I was like, this is going to be my future wife. This is going to be the mother of my children. You know, I need to let her know that I'm willing to make sacrifices for this relationship. So I, I dropped everything, found out on a Tuesday, and on a Thursday I was on a plane back to Seattle. Literally dropped everything to go back and support her. So get back to Seattle Four days later, I find out my father has terminal lung cancer. You know, and literally just everything had just come completely crashing down around me. And then three weeks later, her and I break up. So, oh. you know, it's the whole reason I came back in the first place, and then that's, that's over with. What do you think was the reason that things didn't work out after so many years? Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. I mm-hmm. think ultimately what it comes down to is she was and still is an amazing woman. You know, when I first met her, I was like, I'm never getting married. I never want to have kids. I was just adamant about it. You know, she awoken within me, you know, the desire to be a husband, the desire to be a father. You know, so she has all of these amazing qualities, you know, and she taught me more about the faith than she probably will ever know. I think what had happened is we were both amazing people, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're compatible. And I think we had conflated the two, because when she met me, you know, I was basically the Van Wilder of UW. You know, everybody knew me. I was always on the front page of the newspaper. I was like the Hub Hall of Fame Award, all these other, you know, constantly in the news on the media and things like that on campus. And, you know, was doing all this stuff and was just exteriorly this great guy. And I felt the same way about her. But, and it, you know, that, that's the situation. You know, we were both, both are amazing people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, our characters are compatible. And, you know, everything that she was going through, you know, with her trauma, mm-hmm. everything that I was going through with, you know, my father dying and her trauma, we just couldn't support each other. And then that was incredibly hard because that 
you know, she was this massive support structure that I'd had over the last, you know, all these years, and it was gone. And I was having to, you know, deal with literally watching my father die. And, you know, I moved back from Seattle to Eastern Washington to, to be with my family and to help him out. And, you know, luckily, you know, there's a Baha'i family about 45 minutes from where I live, Steve and Randy Gottlieb, my saving grace when I was out here. You know, and like clockwork, you know, I would drive up there every single Wednesday for their firesides, you know, and I'd get there at about 6 o'clock and I'd stay till 11 o'clock midnight. And, and we'd do Ruhi. You know, this is when I was, you know, high, high years investigating the faith, you know, reading as much as, you know, that I could get my hands on. So September 16, 2007, and at the time I was, an, I was an editor for a newspaper. You know, so I'd, I'd always work late, you know, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, putting pages together and things like that. You know, so I got done about 1 o'clock in the morning, came home, and couldn't really sleep, just kind of wide awake. You know, and I was reading a few different things. You know, I was like, ah, I want to I wanna read, you know, read some stuff on the faith. Dale Ng, who's a, a very kind of famous Baha'i scholar, had written a book called 101 Questions Commonly Asked Baha'is. You know, I was just flipping through it, you know, because I, you know, I want to read the whole thing, you know, in my investigation process. And again, you know, this is, didn't believe in God, the faith wasn't revolutionary enough, you know, blah, 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 blah. A few weeks before, Randy Gottlieb had asked me, she's like, well, you know, what's your definition of revolution? And we kind of went through all the, you know, the way in which I defined revolution. At that point, it dawned on me. I was boxing in the Baha'i faith into what my definition of, of religion was. And it's not. It's, 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 you know, it's impossible to, to reduce it to that or to, you know, replicate these antiquated forms of understanding what religion is to understand this new revelation, basically. You know, Abdu'l-Bahá actually has a quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it right now, but he's, it's, a, it's a dogmatic formula of the past are religion and the Baha'i faith is not. If they are religion, then we are not. Basically saying this is something different. And, you know, for me, that revelation that Baha'u'llah had given is revolution. You know, it's revolution par excellence. Her asking me that question has very much kind of prepped my soul, you know, to recognize Baha'u'llah and to become a Baha'i. So I'm sitting there, I'm reading, I'm reading through this book. Things like 1,500 pages. It's huge. And I just flipped it open, you know, randomly to a section. And the section, the question was, it's like, if I follow the guidance, you know, I live my life like a Baha'i, why do I have to be a Baha'i? Or, you know, it was something along those lines. And it wasn't necessarily anything, like, profound or prophetic. And, you know, and I thought of that stuff before. But so I'm sitting there, and it's, you know, it's literally, it's like, you know, right 2 o'clock in the morning. I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to practice saying I'm a Baha'i. I'm just going to practice. I'm going to see what happens. You know, I just, I just want to see what it sounds like. For an hour and 19 minutes, I basically was, was hyperventilating, was throwing up. I was having to, like, breathe into a sack, brown paper bag, because I couldn't breathe was curled up into a ball, just massive, like, stomach pains, massive, you know, literally just vomiting and crying and, like, just literally trying to say, like, I'm a Baha'i. You know, I'd say, like, I'm a and I'd just go up. <laughs> it was surreal. I had my own reasons why, you know, I think that was. Sure enough, 319 in the morning, I was like, I'm a Baha'i. And I said it and was like, yeah, I'm a Baha'i. You were beyond the trial period. Yep. It was too late at that point to go back, so to speak. So the next day... I drove up to Yakima, and, and, you know, Randy and Steve were there, and I just kind of danced around the issue for a while, and I was like, hey, you guys got one of those cards that I could sign? And that was the process. It was basically having to recognize that, you know, this, this is, at least, you know, for my definition of it, it is revolution. You know, I've studied revolutionary theory all over the planet, and there's nothing that I've ever, ever come across that's as radical, you know, as the faith is.
you know, what we're trying to build, what we're trying to change, what we're striving for, you know, and then also recognizing that that I was using all these other formulae to understand what religion was, and that's not necessarily what this is. And it is different, and it's new, and we don't necessarily know what it is or what it looks like or what it is going to look like, you know, but I accepted that, you know, Baha'u'llah was who he says he was, and trying to bring my life into accord, and by definition, that's a Baha'i, so... <laughs> What happened after you became a Baha'i? <laughs> oh, the test began. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that yeah, happens. Was, oh boy, yeah, it was it was funny because yeah, Randy. So she had the card, and she's like, she's like, before you sign this, she's like, I want to tell you something. You know, she's like, always remember, or you you being a Baha'i has nothing to do with the community. It has nothing to do with your friends. It has nothing to do, you know, with even what you think. You know, how you interpret the writing, so to speak. She goes, all that it has is between you, God, and Baha'u'llah, and that is it. Like, that is it. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, give me the card, I want to sign it. You know, just totally kind of blew her off. And two days later, you know, the biggest test I have ever been given in my life was, you know, from one of the Baha'is that was the absolute closest to me in the world. So had I declared for that person, or because I thought Baha'is were nice, or they were all loving and kind and sweet, you know, I would have, that would have been it. I would have been like, peace out, you know, you're hypocr- you're all hypocrites, you're liars, your, your talk doesn't match your walk, you know, I'm done. And, you know, luckily I've been given the bounty to learn the lesson that there's a huge difference between the revelation itself and the followers of that revelation. The Baha'i faith is not the Baha'is. We recognize it, we try to bring our life into accord, but, you know, you can't judge your faith by its people, so to speak. I, I learned that lesson the hard way, you know, and, and a bunch of other tests as well that is my capacity increases, you know, as, as do the tests I'm given. But it's been, I mean, it's been amazing. I've grown and changed and questioned things in ways that I never, never would have thought I would have had the capacity to question or to, you know, to see the world kind of in this, in this way. So my dad died December 3rd, 2007, and I moved back to Seattle in February and did Homefront Pioneering. Which is what, Bradford? Homefront Pioneering is, you basically... Quote, like you pioneer in your community. So it's you get a group of other Baha'is, or you can do it by yourself. You can either do it, you know, exactly where you are right now, you don't even have to move, and you dedicate and commit yourself to like teaching the faith within the community that you're in. But they call it home front because it's most most of the time it's within your own community or within your own nation. So I was able to be with, you know, seven other youth, all amazing. Elham was one of the ones that was living there. You know, we had a duplex for modesty sake, you know, boys on one side, girls on the other. You know, and I got to do my first fast with them. And, you know, my first Yamiha, you know, the fast is a high fast once a year for 19 days. And the Yamiha is the big, big celebration beforehand where we, we prep for it. You know, and over the summer I was able to do, literally spent my entire summer doing Baha'i activities. And, you know, I did three different youth camps. One of them was a, a nine-day intensive study of the Dawnbreakers, which is the most important historical text in the Baha'i faith. I got to go out to Massachusetts for three weeks with the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity, which is one of the, the offices in Haifa that's, that's trying to figure out, you know, how do, we, how do we change this world and make it better. I've got to go to the SED conference, the Social and Economic Development Conference, and the Association for the High Studies Conference. And, yeah, so many years, this, you know, this last year and a half since I've declared has been utterly phenomenal. So I have a question for you, Bradford. Yeah. Were you a avowed Marxist up to the point that you decided you were going to try to be a Baha'i? Definitely. I, I, you know, I would have considered myself kind of a post-Marxist, you know, if we're going to be technical. 
you know, and in many ways, I, you know, I still do consider myself a Marxist. You know, it's impossible to be a Marxist in the most advanced capitalist society in the world, the U.S., but Marxist in the sense that that methodology, I think, is incredibly effective for understanding how spaces of oppression, you know, and I'm, I'm a geographer, so I think in terms of space, but how spaces of oppression are produced. The methodology that Marx came up with, he applied it to capitalism. So he looked at how capitalism produces class disparities, how it produces wealth, but it also produces poverty. You know, and you can take those that methodology and apply it to race and apply it to class to look at, you know, how racism and white supremacy, how does it produce a racial disparity between whites and non-whites? Or sexism, how does sexism produce disparity between, you know, men and women? You know, but at the same time, like, I understand that, you know, it's it's limited, what the, the revelation of the Hall Law has brought. It's not Marxist, it's not capitalist, it's not any of these things. You, know, you can't reduce it to, to any of these isms or any of these, these ideologies. But at the same time, there are beneficial aspects of capitalism if it worked in a perfect system. You know, and I think there's, there's benefits to Marxism as well. As far as understanding the way the world works, or certain parts of the understanding how certain parts of the world work. And were you an avowed atheist at the time that you decided to try to be a Baha'i? I would oscillate between, you know, being an atheist or, you know, absolutely, if there was a God, I hated God. You know, how, how could God let all this suffering exist? How could God have created white supremacy? You know, how could God let, you know, and just, you know, and the things that I'd seen, you know, witnessing multiple genocides, being in multiple war zones, just seeing all that, I mean, like, how is there a God? And I remember... I was in. I was actually in Kenya. And we were driving through the slums of Kenya, and I was. There's a hip hop, a high hip hop group in Seattle called Common Market. And they have a song called Crossblow, which is about a uh, you know kind of Christianity and and things like. It's an amazing song. I was listening to the song and had this basically epiphany moment where I was like, God hasn't failed man. Man has failed God. And you know that was another one of those big turning points that I needed to go through to kind of come to terms with one of the central questions that people within a faith or outside of it, you know, questions is why does so much suffering exist? The thing was, yeah, I was blaming it on God, but, you know, God didn't create the suffering, you know, and as Baha'is, we don't even believe in evil. You know, all evil is is a lack of love, you know, or a lack of compassion or a lack of, you know, these virtues. It's not an actual thing. And God is repeatedly, in God's infinite patience, sent us manifestations to guide us, has given us basically all of these tools not to do the things that we do, and, you know, we, we kept messing up. If God tells us, you know, don't kill, and we kill, it's not God's fault, it's ours. So that was a big, big turning point. But yeah, it was was a avid atheist and, an, you know, avid, very militant Marxist, having declared, you know, a lot of those those relationships or those communities that I was a part of, for one reason or the other, they've become estranged or they've, they've grown distant because my, my beliefs and, and my way of trying to bring about change in the world doesn't necessarily fit into theirs. You know, and when that common ground is kind of swept away it's, and, and you don't have this kind of common spiritual language to develop a friendship on, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. How were you able to transition to not believing in God to the concept of communing with God and praying to God? Yeah, and that's, a, that's an excellent question. I think one of the biggest ways that I've come to that, you know, is, is, is from the writings themselves. You know, one of our, the basic tenets of the Baha'i faith, you know, is that God is unknowable. 
God is completely and utterly unknowable and unfathomable. To me, that's very reassuring. <laughs> you know, because when I lived in Montana for three years in this very, you know, Presbyterian fire and brimstone environment, it was, you know, like, you need to know, you know, you need to be friends with God, and God needs to be your best buddy, and you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and, you know, this this idea that he, I needed to know God, and if I didn't know God, then I was a bad Christian. Within the faith, it's, it's completely, you can't know God. Yes, you can recognize God. You can recognize God the way that I recognize God in Elham, and seeing her reflect the attributes of God. I can recognize God in the Baha'i writings. I can recognize God in a sunset. So that, that communing with God and that praying to God every day and, and, and having faith that the revelation that we've been given is from whatever God is, it's not necessarily about knowing God. It's about just being able to, I guess you could say, see God in the world, but not feeling that pressure that I need to know God, because you can't know God. But I still have faith that, you know, God exists, whatever, you know, in whatever capacity that is, and struggling daily to kind of bring my life into accord to the revelation that we've been given for this day and age. And then how do you answer the question, how could God let millions of Jews die in the Holocaust? You know, and that's the thing is, I, I don't know. I can't speak for God. <laughs> you know, people ask me, like, why did God let this happen? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, independent investigation of truth, you find it out for yourself. You know, it's like, I can't give, you know, anybody those answers. The path that I took to get to where I am is, is you know, it's my own path. And it's not going to work for anybody else. You know, but usually when that question comes up, or, you know, the way that I've resolved it in my own mind, you know, goes back to that idea that, you know, God did not fail man, man failed God. And we're told not to commit genocide, and we're told not to kill, and we're told not to rape, and we're told not to do these things. Not out of this authoritarian, draconian God that wants to punish us, these laws that we've been given you know, for our own benefit, or, you know, for our own spiritual growth. And, you know, when we break those laws, we have free will. You know, it's, it's the idea that one of the proofs of God, so to speak, is that God says that, that we were created in His image, and therefore we have all of the qualities and the attributes of God. Not to the same extent, you know, we're not love with a capital L or, you know, truth with a capital T, but we have all of those qualities. One of the attributes of God is will. So we have free will. We've been, our souls are invested with that capacity. If we didn't have that attribute, we wouldn't be human. By definition, we would not be created in the image of God. Thus, having free will, we have the ability to make these decisions, to commit all these atrocious things and, and things like that. But at the same time, to kind of go even deeper, I think that, I mean, I've, I've seen horrific things you know, in, in my, you know, limited, I'm 27 in two weeks, you know, and in those very short 27 years, I've, I've literally witnessed the, the barbarities firsthand that we are capable of unleashing upon each other. And I think within that, though, the redeeming thing is that if we're capable of that much evil and that much horror, inversely, by definition, we also have the capacity to be that loving and to be that amazing, you know, literally to, to rise to the station for which we were created, you know, and we're not even infinitesimally close to, to being there, but it gives me hope. You know, I've seen the horrible things that we can do, you know, the counterbalance to that is that we have the capability just as much to do that, inversely, that many amazing things. You know, it's one of the few things that, that kind of gives me hope in, you know, the social justice work that I do and kind of being immersed 
you know, in that daily. So, Bradford, what are you doing now? Last October, my grandmother fell, broke her other hip, got pneumonia, was in ICU. So I ended up moving back to eastern Washington again to, you know, support her and to be with my family. And, you know, because they're just, I mean, you know, my family is such a priority to me that, you know, just didn't even think twice about it, dropped everything and moved back. So I have a job as a grant writer right now, which I absolutely love. It's, it's the, the best job I've ever had. I'm trying to, you know, learn how to be content with the plan that God has destined for me or has, has created for me. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a few things in the future. I might, I might apply to Haifa for two and a half years to work, you know, in the Office of Social and Economic Development, you know, because my entire background is development studies and, and things like that. I might go to grad school. You know, I'm looking at PhD programs and, and stuff like that. But right now it's just, you know, really trying to, in my very busy schedule, immerse myself in the writings as much as I can teach the faith when God gives me the opportunity, you know, and just and serve within my own capacity. Well, Bradford, thank you so much for sharing your story. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bradford Baker, a young man who grew up in a completely dysfunctional family and was heavily into gang activity during his youth, yet was able to rise above this history to become a Baha'i and dedicate his life to service toward humanity. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Rise then
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.